Hey, just a quick note before we get started. For this episode, we went into a recording studio and re-recorded George Martin's complete score for Strawberry Fields Forever, which he wrote for three cellos and four trumpets. We used the Beatles' own percussion track for the song as the basis for our recording so we could match the tempo and feel as closely as possible. In doing this, I asked the engineer to close mic each instrument individually, which resulted in seven isolated tracks to work with. This meant we could mix parts in and out to explain how the music works. When we were finished, I thought this recording was too interesting only to use in short cuts for the podcast, so I've made it available for download on Apple Music, Google Play, and if you prefer a lossless option, on Bandcamp as well. All the necessary links are on the episode page on our website, producingthebeatles.com. The isolated score for the Beatles' actual recording has never been released, so this is a chance to hear an authentic reproduction, complete and an excellent sound. And by purchasing this track, you'll be contributing toward production costs for the podcast and hopefully more re-recordings of Beatles scores in the future. Again, you can find the links for Apple Music, Google Play, and Bandcamp on the website, producingthebeatles.com. Okay, here's the episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the season one finale of Producing the Beatles, the podcast dedicated to exploring the untold story of producer George Martin's revolutionary collaboration with John, Paul, George, and Ringo. I'm your host, Jason Krupa. Most discussions about the making of Strawberry Fields Forever focus on one story, And if you've heard any interview where George Martin talks about this recording, you've probably heard him tell some variation of this story. And after we'd done the first one, John said he'd like to have another go at it and asked me if I would do a score. And we did um, another very good track. And John liked that too. But he said, you know, I still think something of the original was really good. I wish we could have that. He said, I'd like to have the beginning of the original and the end of the second one. I said, I was sarcastic. I said, okay, well, you've done these two tracks. All you want is just to cut them together, don't you, right? I mean, the only trouble is they're in completely different keys and completely different tempo. Apart from that, they're ideal. So he ignored my sarcasm. Well, I'm sure you'll find a way of doing it and walked away. We'll get to that at the end of the episode. But that's only one part of the magic at work in Strawberry Fields. What we're most interested in today is the take that makes up the second part of the record, take 26, which in itself is a remarkable recording. Having been through two different arrangements already, John Lennon pushed forward to a third version of the song. George Martin made one of his most dramatic contributions to the song with his score for three cellos and four trumpets, a score which I don't think has ever been given proper attention. We're going to change that today, and to do so, we'll be going into the recording studio with seven musicians to re-record this score to see what we can learn. And as we record, we'll break down the arrangement and discuss how all its moving parts work together, as well as the ways this score reaches back 
and uses material from an earlier take of the song. Cellist Karen Ray, who joined us on our second episode, returns to play on our re-recording and share her insights about the subtleties of this arrangement. So join us as we dig deep into the elusive spirit of Strawberry Fields Forever on this episode of Producing the Beatles. Strawberry Fields had a famously complicated evolution from home demo to finished recording. If you've seen the Cirque du Soleil show Love in Las Vegas, or if you've listened to the soundtrack, you've heard a compressed version of that evolution, which began with one of John's many home demos, like the one you're hearing now. The first studio take, recorded November 24, 1966, begins to flesh out that spare home recording. Living is easy with eyes closed Misunderstanding all you see This is the same key as the home demos, C major. It sounds pretty shaky, and it's little more than a studio demo itself, but in the second verse, it has these backing vocals. Remember those vocals, because we'll get back to them in a few minutes. John rejected this recording, and the second version, starting with take two, saw the arrangement transformed from an all-new key, B-flat, to an all-new atmosphere, marked by Paul's instantly recognizable intro on the Mellotron. They eventually settled on take six as the best, and they began overdubbing other parts until they ran out of tracks and had to do a tape reduction to take seven to make room for further overdubs. Strawberry Fields Forever, take seven, remix from four track, take six. And here, they had what seemed to be a finished recording. By this point, for John or Paul to reject a take or an arrangement wasn't anything new. Martin himself may have helped encourage this practice very early on, in fact, by listening to the Beatles' slow version of Please Please Me and telling them to speed it up or try something different with the arrangement. This is very much an artist's approach. Try an idea out, and if it isn't to your liking, try it again until you're satisfied. The Beatles had done this quite a few times already. And I love her, what you're doing, I'm looking through you, got to get you into my life, and tomorrow never knows, all began life with much different arrangements than the final recordings. 
Martin had given the Beatles the freedom to try things out, to explore, to use the recording studio as a creative space, just as he had throughout the first 12 years of his own career. So when John said he wanted to try something else for Strawberry Fields Forever, Martin might have been a little surprised because of the quality of the previous recording, but it wouldn't have been that unusual. This next part, however, is very unusual, and it seems to have been the Beatles' idea completely. The Beatles booked Studio 2 at EMI for a 7 p.m. session the evening of December 8, 1966. George Martin and Jeff Emmerich had been invited to a movie premiere that night, so they were late arriving to the session. But the Beatles weren't about to let the absence of their producer and engineer stop them, and they enlisted second engineer Dave Harries to help them out. Once Martin and Emmerich showed up, they found the Beatles were already recording a rhythm track. But it wasn't just any rhythm track. There were no guitars, no bass, no piano or keyboards. Instead, all four Beatles, as well as their roadie, Mal Evans, and a couple of other people, were playing only percussion instruments, timpani, bongos, tambourine, and cymbals. When George Martin played the recordings back, this is what he heard. With the intention of running the tape backward. The Beatles then recorded this. But how would all this fit together for a new version of Strawberry Fields Forever? Martin and Emmerich set about editing the tapes, using pieces from takes 15 and 24, counting out enough measures for each section. The backward parts would go under the verses, and the wilder forward parts would go under the choruses. Ringo would overdub a more conventional drum track onto the wild sections to standardize the rhythm a little and make it easier to follow for overdubs. When they were finished, they had a new four-track tape numbered Take 25 with the percussion on track one. On December 9th, to that wild coda, Paul added electric guitar. And both George Martin and John added Mellotron parts. And here's where Lennon asked George Martin to write a score. And so I said, well, what do you have in mind? He said, I'd like to use some deep strings. I said, cellos, yeah, yeah, fine, and some horns, or maybe trumpets or something of that sort. Okay, and so I, I, I sketched out with him what he had in mind, and I went away and did the score, and we did another version of it. Just like on Eleanor Rigby eight months earlier, this score plays a big role. Not only is Martin's writing powerful and dramatic, it also reflects and supports the emotional world of the song using a variety of musical techniques. I wanted to take a closer look at how this arrangement works, so I gathered four trumpet players and three cellists in a recording studio to re-record the entire score, following the Beatles' own unusual percussion track. The cellists are led by Karen Ray, 
who also helps us break down exactly what George Martin was doing here. Okay. Should I say my name is or just I'm... I'm Karen Ray. <laughs> no, I'm not. Yeah. The first thing we have to look at is why George Martin wrote this score in the key of C instead of B flat. As I was writing for cellos, I wanted to, to the original key was in B flat, so I put it up to C, knowing that John could make it. That meant I could get a bottom C out of my cellos, right? The cello has a high, very lyrical register, which is very singing, that's not utilized at all. It exclusively uses sort of the middle register of the cello and the lowest register. The standard string quartet, it's two violins, viola, and cello. The cello supplies the bass, the viola is sort of uh, the tenor line, then there's a second violin that sort of serves like second soprano in the choir, and then the first violin is the top voice. Yeah, so since... Um, George Martin only utilized the, the middle and low registers of the cello. Maybe the trumpets are sort of filling the roles of the violins and the violas in a string quartet setting, but just with a totally different timbre. They add this sort of bright, brassy sound to the top rather than a, a warm string sound. Martin uses both the cellos and trumpets to shape the overall mood of this recording. I think, you know, one thing that happens is the sort of tone of the song changes. It starts off as very gentle and dreamlike, and it becomes very intense and very aggressive. And I think that's accomplished largely through what's happening with the cello and the trumpet scoring. The trumpets start off with these half-note chorales. You know, there's increasing use of faster and faster note values in the cellos. They start off just moving in sort of quarter note pulse. The cellos start using more driving eighth note pulses, which were sort of like Eleanor Rigby. the third time the chorus appears, and that's where the trumpets start using these military calls, these little... By the last chorus, you've got the cellos moving in constant eighth notes. The trumpets are making arpeggiated entrances rather than coming in as block chords. That creates added tension as well. They're using more and more glissandi that's sliding from one note to another, which gives a very queasy feeling. And then the coda comes in, which is just completely unhinged sounding. So it's sort of like he's built up to this big apex, and then everything just explodes. Strawberry Fields is a song about uncertainty. And as Karen points out, this isn't just reflected in the lyrics, 
but also the song's chord structure. I've been thinking about how do you recreate sort of a psychedelic experience in music or art. And I think what you do is you play with the sense of reality, like what you think is the ground and what you think is the sky maybe gets reversed. What's up, what's down? In music, what you do is you create a sense of instability and disorientation. And the first time that happens is the material for the verses. It's rapidly shifting tonal centers. And simply what that means is like you're not quite sure exactly how long are we going to stay in any one key before it starts shifting out of that. The first thing you hear in the trumpets is this G major triad. And your ear immediately thinks, oh, that's the center. That's where we're starting from. That's the ground. That's our tonal center. But immediately what happens is that starts shifting. And you think, oh, we're going somewhere else. Not exactly sure where. And right there, it sounds like maybe you've landed in F major. This gets a little involved. But the main point here is that John had created a chord structure that reflected the uncertain emotional and psychological state he was expressing with the lyrics. And throughout his score, George Martin found ways to emphasize this sense of uncertainty. And what happens with John's first demo tape, this is the chord progression that he did from the G minor chord. And then he goes to A major. And then his vocal line really clashes with that. So you end up really getting this mashup of notes. What happens with George Martin's arrangement for the cellos and the trumpets is he starts on the G minor chord. And instead of going to A major, he goes to an E diminished 7 chord, which is a much more unstable sounding chord. If you have a major chord or a minor chord, it sounds like you've arrived somewhere, like it's an answer to something. But a diminished 7 chord leaves the listener wondering, like, where are we? That chord, it's so unstable, it could resolve in a variety of different directions. I think by introducing that diminished 7 chord, two things are accomplished. One, it adds to the feeling of instability. Also, it happens to match John's vocal line when he sings. Nothing is real. And those notes are all right there within the E diminished 7 chord. The Beatles had already used diminished chords in their songs before. Michelle, off Rubber Soul, is a good example. But it's clear this didn't occur to John for Strawberry Fields, since it never appears in his demos or in the early takes of the song. This is George Martin's way of using a musical device to underline the lyric of Nothing is Real. And immediately after this moment, he uses another arranging touch to underline the sense of disorientation even more. There's this underlying chord structure that is John Lennon's chord structure. He goes... And then he goes back and forth from F to A major. Well, that same underlying chord structure is still there with George Martin's version. George Martin goes. But instead of just doing these block chords, F and A major, he puts these parallel whole tone scale lines. Whole tone scale is another very disorienting trick that's used in music to sort of create a sense of no center, also a sense of floating or drifting. And what's happened here is just the cellos and the trumpets together play. 
This is all admittedly pretty deep analytical stuff and far too complicated for most interviews, so George Martin never commented much on the details of this arrangement. But given his classical background, all of this was within the range of his musical knowledge. Now, let's go back to those backing vocals from take one. These two vocal lines are where Martin found the melodic material for his score. First, he transposed the vocal lines for trumpet. And then filled out the harmonies by adding two more trumpets playing higher parts. So the Beatles started with this and Martin would transform it into this. On December 15th, a week after the Beatles taped their unusual rhythm track, Martin overdubbed this score onto take 25 with that wild percussion track on track one. With the four-track tape full, they did another tape reduction called take 26. This cleared tracks three and four to make space for further overdubs, primarily two vocal tracks by John, one of which also had an extra snare part, as well as George Harrison's memorable flourishes on the Svara Mandal. Nothing to get hung about Strawberry feels forever No one I think is in my tree I mean it must be high or low That is you can't, you know, On to track four after the vocal, Paul overdubbed a piano part. This was on December 21st, and after Martin and Emmerich mixed the song to mono, they thought they'd finally finished with Strawberry Fields. But then, after listening to this new recording, John decided he liked the beginning of Take 7 and the ending of Take 26, even though the key of Take 7 was B-flat and the key of Take 26 was C. If Martin had simply joined them together as recorded, they would have sounded like this. Let me take you down Cause I'm going to Strawberry Fields That obviously wasn't going to work. Back in Episode 7, we discussed Verispeed recording, and the following day, December 22nd, Martin figured out he could use this relatively new technique to join these two takes. Ultimately, he realized that by slowing down Take 26 from the key of C. Let me take you down cause I'm going to strawberry to approximately B flat. Let me take you down cause I'm going to strawberry field. 
he could come close enough to matching both the pitch and tempo of Take 7. Let me take you down Given 1966 recording technology, Martin must have thought he'd solved an impossible problem. Remember, this is before computers or Pro Tools or any way of changing pitch and speed independently of each other. When he figured out how to make this edit work, it must have been a mind-blowing moment for him. Strawberry Fields Forever is one of the most vivid examples of how the collaboration between George Martin and the Beatles worked when it was at its peak. And in the process of rendering this wild, experimental recording to tape, they set a tone for the coming Sgt. Pepper sessions, where they would rewrite the rules for how a pop recording could be created. But how did George Martin learn how to do all the things he was able to do as a producer? And who was he before he met the Beatles? And for that matter, who were the Beatles before they met George Martin? Next season we'll start to look into those questions and continue to learn about how more Beatles recordings were created. And while this is the end of Season 1 proper, we'll have a few bonus episodes after this one, so stay tuned in the coming weeks for those. Is it ready? It's a bit going now. Thanks for listening. Producing the Beatles is written, directed, edited, and produced by me, Jason Krupa. Big thanks to Karen Ray for playing cello and sharing her insights with us about the score, and also thanks to our other musicians, Rachel Shea and Jack Kraft on cellos, Kevin Ray Clark, Mark Levron, Cyrus Nabapur, and Ian Smith on trumpets. Also thanks to Ben Lorio at the Music Shed Recording Studios for engineering our re-recording of the Strawberry Field score and for making everyone sound so good. And finally, to Eric Arena at Mainline Recording in Westfield, Massachusetts for doing such a great mix of the score for us. Remember, you can download our complete re-recording of the score on Apple Music, Google Play, and Bandcamp. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at PTBeatles and for more information, including show notes and references, be sure to visit our website, producingthebeatles.com. You can also find our email there if you have questions or comments. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to rate us on iTunes and let everyone know about us every way you can. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to us using your favorite podcast platform. <laughs>